Good morning. All right. Hope everyone's weekend has went well. Enjoyed the warm weather, all that good stuff. Uh, this morning we are going to continue to just go right on through uh, the Bible, and uh, we are still in uh, what's called the uh, Torah or the Pentateuch, right? So we're still here at the very beginning. The story has still just begun. Uh, one phrase that you're going to continue to hear us say over the course of this next year is the Bible is one unified story that points us to Christ. Um, and one thing that we're actually kind of trying to unpack during these first few books is how they actually intertwine in the narrative within themselves as well, okay? And then we're going to take like the Torah and how that connects with everything else, okay? So uh, last week, Nathan did a really good job of giving us a good flyover of the book of Leviticus, um, and that was no small task at all, okay? There's a lot of really great information, a lot of thick uh, things to try to have to grapple with and, and absorb and everything, uh, but Nathan did a great, great job of kind of bringing us back into one singular point. Um, and that is that you know, God's primary concern is the atonement of his people so that he can dwell with us. Um, and through the entire book of Leviticus, that, that's what we keep kind of coming back to, right? Um, unlike other quote-unquote gods of the time, um, our God actually let the Israelites know exactly what he needed. Um, and that's kind of a rare thing, to be honest. So uh, he g- uh, gave them all this you know, huge book of instructions and ceremonies and laws and everything like that because his goal was to be here was to be with us. That was his goal. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the main thing we try to learn through the book of Leviticus. And man, it was just, it was so much, right? So many laws, so many ceremonies. Um, and it just seemed like this really hard, like, thing it was like, man, how are they ever going to do this? And I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but following God's not necessarily an easy thing. Um, it's actually rather difficult. Um, they call it the straight and narrow path for a reason. Um, <laughs> you know, and we tend to look back at, you know, things like Leviticus and things like, like man, that's so hard. But um, I mean, we, we look at today and with all the temptations, and everything that we have, like it's not any, that much easier now. You know, um, f- following God is not an easy thing. Um, I remember a phrase, and to be honest with you, I remember the phrase, and I don't even remember the person, which sa- sounds really bad, but I always remember this, this phrase that someone told me. He goes, I tried the whole Christian thing, and it just didn't work for me. Um, and at the time, I didn't really know how to respond to that phrase. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with that, you know? Um, because it was just, he, he, the, the person just had this, this strange way of trying to think about it, you know, because it was just, it was very, um, you know, I'm going to try God and see what he can do for me in my life to make my life better, you know? And, and that was the entire point. But Missing that, that that actually isn't the point of Christianity at all, right? Uh, so let, let's go back even a few more weeks, right, and kind of recap. Remember whenever David was talking about uh, priests? Did everyone remember what the uh, definition of a priest was? Does anyone remember that? Right, right. So, so a, it's a person that's like a direct connection. And, and really, actually, priest isn't even necessarily a like a Jewish or a Christian term. It's just priest in general, right, was a direct connection to a divinity, uh, 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 divinity right? So that, that's, that's what we were called, right, this is what David kind of taught on, to be a royal priesthood, right? So this is, this is God's goal, guys. This, this is God's goal. Not to make us healthy, not to buy us a Ferrari, not, nothing like that. No, God's goal is to atone his people, dwell with us, so we can be a blessing to all nations, Right? So that we can be that royal priesthood. So we can be that connection to God for others. Right? And that's the part that's not easy. 
So, so we, we see all of these laws, we see all of these things, and what they actually point us to is not necessarily how strict God is, but it points us all the way back to the fall, right? Because all of these books are going to connect. points us all the way back to the fall and reminds us of actually how unholy we actually are. Like it's going to take all of these things in order for us to maintain this relationship. And actually, it's even uh, further unpacked whenever God's telling us how to build the tabernacle and everything like that. He, he puts the curtain up, right? Which is this demonstration that there is this relational divide between us and the Father. And in fact, that there's an entire book dedicated to make us clean. Actually points us not to how strict he is but how unclean we actually are. It points us to our own brokenness. And in turn points us to how good he is to make the way. Right? And, that, and that's why we have all of this in here. And like I said, just so much information. And Nathan was able to give us this good flyover yesterday, uh, last week. And then this week, now we're going to be in Numbers, the next book. Okay? And we're going to kind of point out how Numbers fits, obviously, within the Pentateuch, but then also within the overall narrative of the Bible. <clears throat> now, whenever we first get into Numbers here, it starts out with this Honestly, um, most people think a very boring <laughs> section of the census, right? We, you know, numbers, you get it? Okay. Uh, so we, we take a census of the, of the Israelite people and everything. And I'm sure, did, did anyone just really eat that stuff up? Like you're going through here, you're, you're really into the details, you're into the numbers, you know, did anyone just really love that? Yeah. yeah you're weird. No. no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, no, 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 that's good. That's good. Because some people really, really enjoy that. You know, and I'm not saying that if you, if you didn't enjoy that, you did something wrong. Like, oh, I missed it. Oh, uh, there's no reason for me to get... D don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Uh, but what I do want to do is encourage you, okay? And say, as we continue to go through the Bible, there's going to be boring parts, <laughs> right? There's going to be a, a lot of sections that's just like, it's just heavy on detail. It's, you know, heavy on genealogies and things like that. And let me just encourage you with this, okay? It's in there for a reason, okay? Right? Like, if you didn't just, like, really just eat it up and take it to heart, it's not that you did anything wrong. But I just want to encourage you, right? We're, we're told that actually all of the Bible is breath and good for teaching, Right? It's all in there for a reason, okay? And, and actually, the census and all these numbers and everything, we're, we're going we're gonna to have, we're going to show you the reason here, okay? So we're going we're gonna to dive into this, and like, there, there actually was. There's a reason why we counted all of these people, okay? <laughs> so the book of Numbers opens up, like I said, with the census, but then um, it also starts the narrative of leaving Mount Sinai to go do what? right? We're heading to the promised land. We're finally going to do this, all right? We're going to fulfill all of these promises that God gave us and everything. And that's actually the really cool thing about the book of Numbers, okay? So this is how it kind of fits in with everything else. So Genesis, we see how creation was supposed to be. We see the fall, and then we see the promise give, given to the patriarchs, right, of the Israelite people, okay? We see Exodus come, and God rescue his people from slavery, right? And then we see Leviticus come, and God is trying to instruct us and prepare us on how to be one, uh, and, and, you know, dwell with him and be there with him, okay? All in preparation, God creates this culture for the Israelite people and everything. And then finally, we get the numbers, and now we're kind of starting the narrative of, like, all of these promises that we were given, now now we're going to go after it. Okay? That's kind of where we're at, right? That's how this 
right? That's how we get to numbers. Um, and that's, that's kind of the cool part about this book is that it's actually a very collaborated historical narrative. Um, and there's, there's actually different parts. Uh, just real quick, as I was kind of reading through this, some of this stuff, like, uh, for example, a uh, copper snake was found in some random t- tent shrine in the 12th century BC. Okay, everyone remembers 21, Numbers 21? Okay, keep that in mind because we're actually going to uh, land there today. Okay, um, in the Jordan Valley, there was an inscription on a brick that mentioned Balaam and his oracles. Okay. So just another kind of just connection there that's really neat, okay? Um, even the actual, the actual boundaries of Canaan, how they are described in Numbers 34, matches exactly to an Egyptian text that was found in 15th century BC. So just a lot of collaborate, uh, uh, collaboration with other texts and everything. And I'm not trying to say like, so he just proves it. Like, don't worry about that, okay? I'm just trying to make the point that Numbers is this narrative that is allowing us to see how the Israelite people are finally going to go out and try to get these promises that were originally given to them back in Genesis 12. Okay? That's how numbers fits in. Again, how do we start this? The Bible is an overall narrative, right, that points us to Christ. So that's something we're going to try to do as we're reading through the Bible. Myself, David, Nathan, whenever he gets up here and everything, we're trying to always point us back to the overall narrative and how each of these stories and books fit within that. Okay? So you're reading it on your own, but we also want to highlight things like that as we're going through it. Okay? So we're talking about this, uh, this journey through the wilderness, <clears throat> uh, trying to uh, get to the promised land, everything like that. So, so here's the point. All right? Here's the point of... Uh, numbers whenever we are talking about this. We're actually going to go back, and I want to read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. So whenever I'm talking about the promises, these are the specific ones I'm talking about. Okay, so let's read them real quick. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Go in there and turn there with me. Um, If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn, please. Uh, It will be on the screen behind me. If you do not have a Bible with you, there is one on the seat's racks like they're in front of you, okay? Um, So if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use that. If you don't have one at all, feel free to take that home with you. If you know of someone that requires a Bible, that you feel like you'd like to give them a Bible, take it home and give it to them, okay? Uh, Those Bibles are free to use, okay? So just take them with you. We want to make sure that we get the word not only into your hands, but to everyone's hands, okay? That's the goal. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, okay? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. So as we are talking and as you guys have read through... uh, numbers and kind of absorbed, let's say, the narrative here. How many of these promises have you guys seen throughout the story? I have four main ones that I wanted to point out, okay? One is the land. Two is descendants. Three is the covenant relationship. And four is the blessing of the nations. And we actually see all four in the book of Numbers. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it interesting, right? Like, so numbers is more than just a census, right? It's more than just this boring genealogy, all right? That's what we're trying to point out, okay? So the first one is the land. 
meaning that you'll go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, right? So there's the promise in there. Why are we leaving Mount Sinai at the beginning of the book? To head to that land, <laughs> right? That's the point. And we get all the way there until we reach Numbers 14. And what happens? We get to the line, and because of Israel's unfaithfulness, they can't go in. They're stopped. And they have to turn right back around and go right back out into the wilderness. All right? They weren't ready, right? Even though God had been trying to prepare all of them to do this. Let's go back to the census, right? Over 600,000 fighting men. Why was that pointed out? The entire point of the census and why they did that begin with is God was trying to prep them to take the promised land. That's the point of the census. How many fighting men do you have? So we have 600,000 fighting men. And again, that's not the overall population. That's not including the women and the children, right? That's just the fighting men. So we see that the purpose of the, of the census is actually linked directly to one of the promises back in Genesis 12. That's the point, okay? Next, the descendants, which again, you have the census, right? That points us to that. So let's, let's read that. And I will bless you and make your name great. Uh, sorry, and I will make of you a great nation. Sorry, verse two. And I will make of you a great nation. Right, is the promise that God gives to Abram. Remember later on, God kind of makes the promise and says, your descendants will be numbered more than the stars. Right? Well, the, the heart of that phrase is fruitful, many, a lot, large, right? So many. If we have just, just in the men, 600,000, no telling, at least double that. Let's at least double that, right, of the overall population. Can we say that they've, become a pretty good nation, right? It's a pretty good size. Okay, so there. Now we see a direct link just from the boring part. Of the, like we, the book's barely started and we already see two promises fulfilled in that way, right? Or a direct link, I mean, to the promises. Okay? Number three is the covenant relationship. So as you are going through the overall book of, uh, like I said, no specific part, but as you're reading the narrative as a whole, how many times have you seen something mentioned about the cloud? Right? The cloud descending, the, cl- the cloud, the cloud, the cloud. Do you think God is trying to be among his people? Absolutely. Right? Again, that takes back to book, you know, Leviticus. That's what Nathan was trying to point out to us too. Is God is trying to dwell with us. And that's a promise that comes even to the New Testament. Right? Jesus says, I will be with you always. It's an overall theme, guys. I want you to absorb this. God's goal is to be with you. Not some distant God on a, thorn, you know, on a throne that's another dimension or some weird thing. No, he's here. And that's what he wants us to understand. That's the covenant relationship that he's trying to get us to see in numbers. And actually, ironically, when they see it, they see this physical cloud, right, that descends. They see this over and over and over, and yet they are still unfaithful. Which is why we have the book of Leviticus. Pointing out just how unholy we are. It can be right in front of our nose, and we just can't acknowledge that He is God. And we are not. 
And fortunately, in the fourth one, the blessing of the nations in this particular section. We see it, we see this kind of promise pointed to because of its opposite. We see every, almost every interaction that Israel has with surrounding nations is war, battle, fighting. They're not getting along. So we see curses over and over and over. That's what God tells us, right? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So we see all of these promises that originally gave, given to Abram in this book. And how the Israelites respond. They would have known of these promises. They would have been taught these promises. They're witnessing this, these promises. And for some reason, they still just can't enter the promised land. How many times in our own life are we unwilling to just see the miracles around us? We're unwilling to acknowledge God's work around us. We're too busy seeing everything that's going wrong. In a little bit, we're going to get into Numbers 21. It's going to unpack this a little bit more. But um, I like the way that actually God kind of words it more in Exodus 6. Um, verse 7, he says, I will take to you to be my people and I will be your God. He's saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. Jesus says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And how many times in our, in our sin, in our rebellion, that promise isn't good enough. We don't find peace in his presence. We don't find peace in his provisions and his miracles around us every day. The Israelites witnessed physical, a physical cloud and they still could not trust him enough to go in and, bat, and take, like, take on the Canaanites. We see all of these promises coming to be we see a trend. We see a trend with them. And not just in Numbers, not just in Leviticus, but throughout the entire narrative of the Bible, you see a trend, especially in the Old Testament. We just got done going through Judges a while back. Everyone remember the cycle? I should have had you guys bring that up. This is a good illustration. But that cycle just over and over and over, right? God Please forgive me. I repent. I tear my clothes. And then, like, what, a week later, you're right back at it. <laughs> you know? And we saw that cycle over and over and over again in Judges. We see it over and over and over again in the wilderness. Over and over. They just can't get it. But there's another layer actually, to this cycle. And in Numbers 21, I want to unpack this a little bit. So if you would go ahead and turn with me. Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. And we're going to read all the way down through verse 9. This is kind of a turning point when we're talking about uh, this complaining, grumbling cycle. And um, truth be told, 
it is a very weird section of the text. Um, you, a lot of people look at this and it's like, man, it's just very mystical, right? Um, and actually, uh, later on, the, the Israelites make that mistake, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, but they, they, it's the story of this uh, statue of this snake that heals people, right? And um, it, like I said, it's just this really weird section, and I don't hear any more pages flipping, so let's go ahead and read it. Uh, it's the story of the bronze serpent, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Let's go ahead and read this. From Mount Hor, they set, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now, let's remember, at this point in the story, they actually did ask permission to go through that land, and the king denied it, right, of that particular land. They did, he denied entry, like, don't you come through my property, right? So that's the reason why now we're having to take the long way around to get there, Okay. So that's the reason why we're having to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. <clears throat> kind of like your kids in the backseat on a family trip, right? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, did everybody catch that? This is a big deal, okay? Let's read it one more time. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. He goes, there's no food. There's no water. Oh, that? No, that's gross. I don't want to eat that. Everyone has done that. Everyone has walked into the kitchen, opened the fridge. You just got back from the grocery store. You're looking through like, there's nothing to eat. (laughs) Right? Everybody has done that, okay? Or you have your, you know, your 16-year-old, 17-year-old boy come in here. Comes in, it's like they look in the pantry. If there's not a bag of barbecue chips, there's nothing in there, right? If there's not exactly what you want, it's trash. Throw it away. There's no, like, come on. Everyone has done that. Um, the barbecue chips, okay, that's more of a me thing. I'm a chip eater. Um, if there's not chips in the pantry, we don't have food, okay? That's kind of how I approach life. Uh, chips and salsa. I, I can live on it. And cheese. You put cheese on it. Whatever. Um, okay, nachos. Everyone loves nachos, right? Okay, so you, you walk in there, and the Israel, God is providing this food. He's providing it. It's not like they're like having to hunt it or anything. Like God is literally providing this food, and they're complaining about it. There is no food, and God's like, "What about that?" And it's like, "Oh, that's gross. I don't want to eat that." Let this speak to the heart of the Israelite people at this point. The level of complaining, the level of just, uh, you know, the darkness, the tove, right, that is in them. Like, there, there's a level here, guys. Okay? All right, let's move on. This, uh, and we load this worthless food. Let's keep going. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sent fiery serpents. Sorry. Okay, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Now we've come to a place of repentance. Now in this story, we have the turn. And not in just this story, But we see this as like a turning point of the book. We see this as a a point of repentance. Now, I'm not saying the rest of the book is perfect. 
I'm not saying they get it right the rest of the time, but this is a turning point when they recognize something. Okay? They're forced to recognize their sin. They're forced to recognize their unfaithfulness. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, here's the weird part, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is weird, right? This is a weird thing. So everyone, like these random snakes are showing up, biting people. They're dying. So finally they admit, we've obviously done something wrong. We've sinned against God. Will you please pray to God on behalf of us so that we may be healed? And God says, uh, so Moses prays. God says, all right, here's what you do. Take, take a snake, right? Out of bronze, slap it on a pole and go, conk. Everyone look here. And they look up and they're healed. Like, this is a weird scene, right? And you see, we see just in those events why it seems like this mystical, powerful, uh, pull, like magic thing, right? In fact, fast forward a little bit to 2 Kings. We're just going to touch on this real quick, okay? In 2 Kings is the, is the next time this serpent is actually mentioned. And the king at the time destroys the serpent because the Israelite people were worshiping it. They made the same mistake. They gave the power to the symbol and not to God. Okay? So the Israelite people eventually do this. Okay? At this particular moment, no, they're recognizing that God is the one that heals them. But eventually, they make that mistake as well. They go, Hunk. they look up, and they're healed. Okay? Really weird. Really weird. Okay? So everyone gets bit by these snakes, and then they're forced to look upon a snake. There's a couple really big symbolisms here that I want to point out, okay? Uh, well, there's several, okay? Uh, but the main ones I want to point out, <laughs> okay, is they're forcing, uh, they're being forced to look upon the thing that is killing them, okay? Make it a snake, a bull, a whatever animal you want. Animal doesn't matter. Take away that particular aspect of it, okay? But they're forced to look upon their sin, they're forced to look upon the thing that is killing them. Okay? So there's symbolism there. All right? When you think snake, when you think serpent, what's the first thing you think of? Say louder. Satan. Right. So now we're going all the way back to Genesis. Right? So now we're back to that story, the story of the original fall. Right? So when we think serpent, when we think snake, that's what we think about. We think about the garden. We think about Eden. We think about our fall. Right? So you crunk, snake on a pole. We look at that. It's like, that's us. That's our evil. That's our fall. We created this. And God made a way to heal us. Right? So that's what we see there. All right? Are you ready for the next level of symbolism? This one's cool. This is the one I like a lot. Okay? So I kept mentioning this cycle of complaining. Okay? I'm curious if anyone caught it. I'm not going to ask because I'm just going to show. But there's another. So, yeah, every time they complained, there's another element within the complaint, okay, that they keep bringing up. All right? Let's go ahead and show the picture. Does everybody see it? What's on their head? Snakes! Who, who is this? Not, not specifically. 
Don't get that. Egyptians, Pharaoh, right? The snake is a symbol of Egyptian power. Okay? And as a, as, as a people, Israel would have recognized that. Okay? Yes, they're in the middle of the woods. Yes, they're in the wilderness. Yes, God could have just used snakes. Okay? But I highly doubt, God is more intentional than that, guys. He's more intentional, okay? He didn't just go and say, well, let's see here. It's time to punish the Israelites again. Um, they're in the woods. What's the nearest biological machine of death that I can use? Oh, snakes. I haven't used that before on them. Let's try that. No, okay? More intentional than that, okay? The snakes, the fire serpents, represent the one thing they keep trying to run back to. Slavery. Over and over again, we keep hearing the complaint to God, to Moses. This isn't good enough. This is horrible. Right, the complaining. It always comes back to, why did you take us out of Egypt? Why did you take us away from our comfortable slavery? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Does everyone remember that phrase? God is trying to point out Slavery is death. Slavery to sin is death. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, Sin, which leads to death. Say that with me. Sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which what? Leads to righteousness. Repeat that again. Obedience, which leads to righteousness. What did the Israelite people have to do to receive their healing? Look. All they had to do was look. All they had to do was obey. Obey the commandment. That's all they had to do. In Exodus, God calls them a stiff-necked people. What do you think of stiff-necked, right? It's, mm, I'm not going to move. Nope, you can't make me. Stubborn. They're stubborn people. They refuse to look up to God. Even in the picture of Mount Sinai, they refused to look up. He was right there, and they wouldn't look up at him. They wouldn't obey. Here, that's all they had to do is look up, obey. Look up, and God will heal. Pointing out that that thing you always want to run back to, the slavery that you want to run back to, will eventually be a slow, rotting death, like the venom of a snake in your veins. The third time the serpent is mentioned is one we have to read. And that's in John 3. And it's by Jesus himself. Let's go ahead and turn there. John 3, verses 12 through 16. It happens right before one of the, like, arguably, the most famous verse in the entire Bible. In this particular scene, this is where Nicodemus comes to Jesus um, in the dead of night to ask questions. And Jesus teaches him a few things about uh, being born again and all of that, right? And then eventually leads to this part of the conversation where Jesus again brings up this serpent. 
So let's go ahead and read there. Uh, John 3, starting at verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who <clears throat> descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, being a Pharisee himself, he would have known of this story. He would know the implications of this story. He probably taught this story himself about the serpent on the pole. He also would have known about Second Kings and how you know, eventually the uh, power of God, the healing power of God was eventually adulterated by us, right? Into Second Kings. He would have known of this, but this is the first time he would have heard it taught in this way when Jesus actually compares himself to the snake. Just like Moses has to take the snake, put it up on a pole, so that we, everyone has to look up at the snake in order to be healed, right? To recognize their sin, recognize their slavery to sin, which is what the snake would represent, and recognize their need for God to heal him. Jesus, in turn, is saying, that's me. That's what I have to do. I have to be lifted onto a pole or onto a tree, right? I have to be lifted up and you need to look to me for your healing. Look to me for your eternal life. Look for me for your relationship, for your guidance. Look to me. Look to me. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn. Obey and look to me. And that's what he's saying. The other symbolism actually that comes with the snake is what it's made of. And that's bronze, which is actually a metal uh, that is um, usually associated with judgment. Okay. Judgment. So, so God cast judgment on the Israelite people, everything like that. But with Jesus and what Jesus is also making this comparison is again, God passes judgment. He passes judgment, but not against us. See, Leviticus points out how unholy we are, how fallen we are, and everything that it's going to take to make us holy. But Jesus, lifted up on a tree, takes all of that on, all of that unholiness, all of that brokenness, all of that darkness, all of that tove onto himself so that we may live. Reminds me of Micah 7. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Micah 7, verses 8 and 9. It says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light unto me. Here we go. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned. We recognize, snake on a pole. We look to our sin. We recognize that we are the ones that are broken. We are the ones that need healing and saving. We look to Jesus because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, not against me. Judgment was passed, but Jesus took on that judgment for us. the same mechanism that God uses back in Numbers 21, he uses again in the person of Jesus. So a judgment could be passed for us. The relational divide by the curtain in the tabernacle is torn. 
And then in John 14, we are, we are told that then his spirit makes a home in us. The dwelling place that we've been talking about in Leviticus, that we've been talking about, that, oh, that dwelling, that's in us now. So as we come to a close, I'm going to have the worship team come back up, but we want to think about this morning our own Egypt. Because we have to be honest, we all have a, a slave nature. Sometimes we get to that border of the promised land and our unfaithful slave nature just, just can't get us there. And we grumble and we complain. Even though we got, you know, God provides food, but it's not good enough. Pantry's bare because there's no barbecue chips, right? And we all have our own Egypt. We all have that, that slavery of sin that we try to run back to when things get tough. And, you know, everyone has a different one, right? It be, you know, alcohol or, you know, women or whatever it is, right? But we all have that one thing that we, we tend to go back to. The power is within us. We're told that in John 14. He dwells within us. But we don't have to go back to that slavery. We don't have to go back to Egypt. We don't have to recognize that power. There's a greater power within us. Luckily, God does not have to send poisonous snakes to remind us of that. We get to read the story. That reminds us of that. Because just like the census, things are putting into, put into this book for a reason. For us to apply and unpack. So this morning, just think on, what is my Egypt? Then as a church too, just as, as memorial, like what, what do we tend to rest in? What, what's something that maybe we've done for the last 50 years? It's like, yeah, we, we trust in this thing, this mechanism, this, this whatever. And instead, we just, we just need to be looking to Jesus. So as the band begins to lead us out and play, just pray on that this morning. If you need someone to, to pray with you, I'll be up here. David's around. Carrie's back there so grab, grab one of us we'd be more than happy to pray with you if you just need to come up and pray uh, on your own look around maybe God's tugging on your heart to go pray with someone on the other side of the room whatever this is a time for you to respond to what God has said this morning so please take this time